This is the word of our Lord from Mark 15, 22 through 39. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he had breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. I must have been seven or so when I first heard C.S. Lewis's tale, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Many of you know I didn't grow up in a church family, so I didn't know Jesus at a as a save, at a, I didn't know Jesus in a saving way as a kid. And so there wasn't a copy of Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe that was all well-read and tattered and left around the house for me to find. Rather, the way that I heard the story was by seeing it on television. Before there was ever a high-budget Hollywood version of it like what most of us have seen, there was a low-budget, poorly animated BBC cartoon version of the story, and that's how I came to know the tale of C.S. Lewis. As most of you know, it's a tale of four children, four siblings, and a new world that they discover together, the world of Narnia, which they stumble into while playing in a wardrobe in a strange old house that they'd been living in. There in the fairy tale land of Narnia, they go on all sorts of adventures, face all sorts of trials. They learn a lot about themselves, and they learn quite a bit about the nature of good and evil as well. Most of you may know that Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is also an allegory, which is to say it's a metaphor of sorts. It's, uh, it's meant to communicate a complex idea in a more accessible way. It's a difficult truth made more simple. And the difficult truth that Lewis attempts to make more simple in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is the truth of the gospel of Jesus and his substitutionary death on the cross, which is what Good Friday, as you know, is all about. When I think back on when I first heard The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the feelings that I felt back then are almost palpable, even still. I remember how the younger brother in the story, Edmund, got them in all sorts of trouble with the powerful witch who sought to rule the land and who had placed a spell on Narnia, causing it to remain winter there uh, forever. 
Edmund had been awful to his brother and his sisters, jealous and spiteful, selfish and angry, turning on them, lying to them, and eventually selling them out to the witch, all for his own selfish gain. And I remember the, the witch making a claim on Edmund's life and quoting the law of the land to him that traitors like him deserved to die. And I remember King Aslan, the kind, powerful lion in the story, and I remember him bargaining with the witch to accept his own life, basically agreeing to be murdered in exchange for Edmund's life and freedom. And as a young non-Christian kid, I was, I was captivated but more than that, I was really confused, and I was angry, and I was devastated. And I just remember sitting there weeping and not really even understanding fully why as I watched Aslan sacrifice his life there at that stone table as the story moved towards its conclusion. Why would this kind and loving king give his life, allow himself to be brutally murdered to save this awful, sorry excuse for a kid named Edmund? About 15 years later, right after God saved me, some of the first thoughts that God brought to my mind uh, through his indwelling spirit who had now taken up residence inside me was of all the people that had talked to me about Jesus earlier in my life, those that I'd held at arm's length not wanting to hear about their God and about this Jesus. It was suddenly kind of like this Rolodex of conversations that had happened over the years with various people in my life and it was flipping through my mind the Holy Spirit reminding me of these little spiritual mile markers where he'd been preparing the way for me and beginning to draw me to himself. But as all this was happening, one of the most prominent memories that God brought to my mind was the one that I've just been describing to you about the first time that I heard the story, that I saw the tale of Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. And he reminded me of how I'd wept as a kid when King Aslan, the lion, was murdered so that Edmund could live. And he helped me see the truth that what had moved me so much in watching the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe all those years ago was in reality the gospel truth about Jesus and the horrific but good news of his cross. As God showed me all this and as I saw the connection between Aslan's murder and Jesus' murder, now I wept again. Because God was showing me not only that Aslan was like Jesus, but even more so that I was like Edmund. I realized that it was my sin in a very real way that put Jesus on the cross. I was the traitor. I was the traitor. I was the one who deserved death. But yet, according to Scripture, while I was still a traitor to God, he showed his love for me by sending his son Jesus to die and pay the ransom that I owed, just like Aslan had done for Edmund. And that's the story of Good Friday, isn't it? That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would follow after him, trusting in his sacrificial substitutionary death to pay the penalty for our sins, should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you remember the first time that you realized that you were Edmund? That you were the traitor that deserved death? Maybe there's a few of you out here tonight that it's the first time you're realizing that. Do you remember the circumstances that God first used to show you the truth that the reason that Jesus was murdered was in some real way because of you and the great offense of your sin against God? Do you remember the first time that you read through the Gospels and had the Holy Spirit lovingly put his finger in your chest and remind you that your own sin has mocked Jesus every bit as much as the mockers 
that we read about here in chapter 15. It's pretty sobering, isn't it? That as sinners by nature and by choice, we bear personal responsibility for Jesus' murder. It's sobering to reflect on the fact that through our own sin, we have become participants in the mocking of Jesus that plays almost like a soundtrack in the background of Mark 15. It's constant. It's always present. But it's easy to miss if we're not careful. Mark does something really interesting here in chapter 15 at the close of his gospel that he almost never does previously. He slows down and he goes into detail in order to make a point. While most of the Gospel of Mark is played like a fast-paced action movie with dozens of immediately statements and fast-moving scene changes, here Mark does something entirely different and changes the pace entirely. And the point Mark means to make painstakingly clear here is the near-universal scorn and mockery that Jesus endured and that since all have scorned and all have sinned against him, all bear responsibility for his murder as well. And that includes you and me. That includes you and me. In verse 15, Jesus is scourged. He's beaten with whips containing pieces of metal and bone, a common but shameful public punishment for those who had been given a death sentence in Jesus' day. In 17 and 18, they dress up Jesus like a king to mock him and to laugh with disdain at his divine and messianic claims. As a parody of the Roman salute to Caesar, they shout, Hail, King of the Jews, while at the same time pushing a crown of thorns onto his head so hard that it pierces the skin. In verse 19, they strike him and spit on him and kneel down to him in false address to him as king. In verse 24, now with Jesus nailed to the cross, the execution squad rolls dice to see who gets his belongings once he's dead. All this as a dying Jesus looks on and hears every word. In verse 27, it notes how Jesus' cross was hung in between the crosses of two others, showing that even hardened criminals mocked him and reviled him, according to verse 32. In 29 and verse 30, even just passers-by, take time to deride and mock Jesus. And in verse 31, the chief priests and scribes join in the mocking, shouting, in essence, he's no Messiah. He's no king of anything. He can't even save himself. He can't even save himself. For those of us who know and love Jesus, it's convicting to read and harder still to come to grips with the reality that each of us bears personal responsibility for the death of Jesus. And this brings us to Jesus' final moments on the cross. And what we see here in these final verses is nothing short of miraculous. In verse 33, we find a darkness falling over the whole land for three hours from around noon until 3 p.m. And as best we can understand it, what's happening here is a divine show of power with the darkness representing God's judgment of human sin. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have been there for that? You're there witnessing the crucifixion of this Jesus who's claiming to be God, and then a darkness falls over the whole land as you're standing there, right in the middle of the day. Don't you wonder what the mockers that had just been mocking him a minute ago, what they were now thinking after this? Maybe some of them would have remembered God's word through the prophet Amos, through whom he said in Amos 8, 9, and on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darkness 
and darken the earth in broad daylight. Then in verse 34, Jesus borrows a line directly from Psalm 22, which is a psalm of lament when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here in Jesus' cry, we feel some small bit of the horror Jesus must have felt at being exposed to the full weight of our sin and the deep sense of separation from God the Father that had come to him as a result of that in that moment. In verse 37, then he cries out again in anguish and he takes his dying breath. And as he cries out, verse 38 tells us, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, in verse 29 that we read earlier, the bystanders had mocked Jesus for famously saying that the temple, that temple built with human hands, that it would be torn down and destroyed. Don't you wonder what the mockers were beginning to think about Jesus now after they watched the public entrance to the temple stretching more than 80 feet into the sky be torn through and through in an instant, just as Jesus cries out and takes his final breath. The text doesn't tell us this, but I'm I'm really hopeful that after what all these witnesses and mockers had just seen, the sky darkening in midday, the massive temple entrance torn into, prophecy after prophecy fulfilled, that after witnessing all of this, maybe now they're beginning to draw a different conclusion about who Jesus really is. Maybe there's someone here tonight that's beginning to draw a different conclusion about who Jesus really is. I'm hopeful that these mockers, like the hardened Roman centurion in verse 39, after seeing Jesus die the way he did with the accompanying signs that they saw, have now come to the same conclusion that the centurion did, believing as he did that truly this Jesus was the Son of God. We're going to enter into a time of response now, and we'll respond a little bit differently tonight than we usually do. First, we're going to spend some time in corporate reflection and in confession and repentance through prayer. Next, we'll spend some time in worship and praise through song together, and we'll take communion together. And then we'll close out the service with a final reading from the end of Mark 15. And so first, we're going to spend a few minutes in corporate prayer together. And how I want to start that time is by reading for us a Puritan prayer called The Grace of the Cross. And we'll have it up here on the screen for you so that you can reflect and follow along as I read it. And then after I finish reading it, we'll take a few minutes in silent prayer and reflection. This poem, this prayer is called The Grace of the Cross. O my Savior, I thank thee from the depths of my being for thy wondrous grace and love in bearing my sin in thine own body on the tree. May thy cross be to me the tree that sweetens my bitter waters, as the flower that blossoms with life and beauty, as that which calls forth in me the look of faith. By thy cross crucify my every sin. Use it to increase my intimacy with thyself. Make it the ground of all my comfort the liveliness of all my duties, the sum of all thy gospel promises, the comfort of all my afflictions, the vigor of my love, thankfulness, graces, and the very essence of my religion. And by it, give me that rest without rest, the rest of ceaseless praise. O my Lord and Savior, thou hast also appointed a cross for me to take up and carry. 
a cross before thou givest me a crown. Thou hast appointed it to be my portion, but self-love hates it. Carnal reason is unreconciled to it. Without the grace of patience, I cannot bear it. Walk with it. Profit by it. O blessed cross, what mercies dost thou bring with thee? Thou art only esteemed hateful by my rebel will, heavy because I shirk thy load. Teach me, gracious Lord and Savior, that with my cross thou sendest promised grace, so that I may bear it patiently, that my cross is thy yoke which is easy, and thy burden which is light. Let's take some time now and reflect on those words and on the scriptures that we've been reading so far together tonight. We'll spend just a few minutes doing that in silent prayer, confessing, repenting, giving thanks to God, and then I'll call us back together. So go ahead and reflect and pray silently now for a minute or two, and then I'll call us back. God, we thank you for the sober reminder that your cross brings. We confess our guilt before you. We repent of our sins against you. And we give thanks to you for your undeserved favor to us through Jesus. Change us through the power of your spirit this night, we pray, God. And be gentle with us as you do. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If our communion stewards would go ahead and begin to get ready. We're going to spend some time in reflection and praise through song now. And for all of us who have already submitted our lives to Jesus, we'll take communion together as well as we continue to consider the Good Friday reality of Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed for us. But for anyone who might be here that's not yet a Christian, there's no better time than tonight for you to give your life to Jesus and then take communion with us in remembrance of him. And so if that's you, please grab one of us. I think there'll be some folks down here that'll be ready to pray with you as well. And they'll pray with you and you can receive Jesus and we can enjoy communion together tonight. Let's worship together now.